On this week's 51%, we spend time with feminist poet and activist Margaret Randall. She has advice for activists today. So I'm hoping that something that the younger generations will learn from us not to be sectarian, to be inclusive. And a Native American poet says working on her latest volume brought some pain to the surface. But no, I really did resent having all these memories flooding in and realizing how much the average woman of my age put up with and endured. I'm Allison Dunn, and this is 51%. Whether it is one object or several, we all have touchstones, things that we consider crucial to our life story. I, for one, still have a bunting that my mother's best friend knitted for me. It reminds me that I was once a newbie in this galaxy, with practically all of life left to learn. Like how to walk. Impressionable, unencumbered. My life in 100 Objects is a personal reflection on the events and moments that shape the life and work of Margaret Randall. She's a feminist, activist, and internationally renowned poet. Through each object in her new book, Randall uncovers another part of herself. She begins in a museum in Amman, Jordan, and ends in the Latin American Studies Association in Boston. Interwoven throughout are her most precious relationships, her growth as an artist, and her brave revolutionary spirit. Randall spoke with 51%'s Elizabeth Hill about what inspired her to tell her life story using a collection of objects. Well, Liz, I had read a book um, several years before by the curator at the British Museum in London. The book was published in 2010. It was called The World in 100 Objects. The author's name is Neil McGregor. I loved that book. I, uh, it was just one of those books that I had around and I would read in it, not necessarily from beginning to end, but um, he uh, wrote about and photographed a hundred objects owned by the British Museum. The oldest was a pointed spearhead. Um, I think it was a million or more than a million years old. And the, the most recent object was a credit card. So that was fascinating to me. And then um, a couple of years ago, I started work on a memoir, which was published in March by Duke University Press. It's called I Never Left Home, Poet feminist revolutionary. And uh, in the aura of doing that book, writing about my life, I just began to notice all these objects that have meaning for me. And so after completing that book, I began to work on this one, my life in 100 objects. And um, it was a lot of fun, you know, just uh, thinking about what objects I would include, and why, and uh, collecting them, photographing them, and then writing the text. What drew you to the specific objects that you chose? One of the uh, considerations, of course, was whether I had the object any longer, whether I could photograph it. I mean, there are objects that have been very meaningful to me in my life, but I've lost them um, over the, the span of these 84 years, or they've disappeared, moving from one country to another or whatever. Some of them were too big. I remember that an object that was important in my early life was my parents' Uh, old Studebaker, which I drove when I first learned to drive. But of course, 
you know, that doesn't, it's not around anymore. So, um, you know, there were a couple of objects in the book, my first typewriter and uh, also, I believe, my first camera, which I, I no longer have, but I, I could get the reproductions online of what those objects look like. But all of the rest are objects which I actually have here with me physically and could photograph. So those were some of the things that, you know, entered into my decisions. And you chose to include snippets of poems as well in your description of the objects and your your writing. Why did you choose to use poems and how did you decide which poems you would use? Well, I consider myself primarily a poet. Uh, you know, I've done a lot of things. I've, I've written books of essay, memoir. I've written a lot of oral history. I've uh, been a photographer um, as well as, you know, a writer. So I could have used uh, other objects and so forth. But um, the poetry is, is really sort of central to my life. And it, it wasn't that I chose specific poems to go with these texts. It was that... In terms of some of the objects, for example, a tiny 4,000-year-old clay head uh, from Teotihuacan in Mexico that uh, my friend, archaeologist, Laurent Sejournay, um, unearthed and gave to me, I had already written a poem about several years before, many years before, about uh, accompanying to Loret on those digs when I lived in Mexico. And so... Uh, the poems sort of fit into the text. So there aren't many poems included in this book, but when they are included, it's because they specifically relate to a text or an object about which I was writing. I thought it was really cool that you included all the strong women that you have either worked with or been mentored by when telling the stories of the objects could you talk about Lorette and Elaine a little further? Absolutely. Um, I've been so fortunate, Liz, in my life to have been um, to have had great artists as friends, and to have been mentored by many people, many of them women. And I think that I gravitated perhaps towards those women: Elaine de Kooning, uh, Hannah Arendt, Mary McDonald, uh, Ida Santa Maria, others. I mean, I've been I've been mentored by men as well, and I value their work, of course. But um, you know, being a woman in in this patriarchal society and being a feminist, being a, a woman, we're, we're just so relegated. And being a, an artist, our work is often not recognized, not shown, not given prizes, not acknowledged in the same way. So I think it's been important to me to have certain women artists as mentors because they gave me the sense early on, and this is true of Elaine de Kooning especially, that, you know, a woman can be an artist and be a a wife and mother if she wants to be, you know, work at whatever she wants. In other words, do it all. And that's sort of been an important leitmotif in my life. I would love it if you could talk about your personal experiences in the Mexican movement, also in the Cuban Revolution, and the tail end of the Vietnam War. Okay. Um, (laughs) I know that's kind of broad. I apologize. It's a big question, (laughs) yeah, but I'll take Mexico first. I moved to Mexico in 1961 
with my small son. He was uh, Gregory was uh, ten months old at the time, and I was a single mother. And I would live in Mexico for the next eight years. Um, I married a Mexican poet there, Sergio Mondragón. And we had two more children, two daughters, and uh, together we founded and edited a really important, wonderful bilingual literary journal throughout the decade of the 60s. It was called El Corum Plumado, the, the Plumed Horn. Um, in 31 issues, we published more than 700 artists and poets from more than 30 countries. We concentrated on good translation and so forth and so on. So, um, you know, that was that was my life in Mexico, largely making the magazine, meeting poets, writing poetry, being involved in the the Mexico City art scene, uh, until in 1968, there was a student movement that was extremely powerful in Mexico. It started in the summer of 68. It was linked in many ways to other movements, similar movements around the world that year. If you'll remember, there was the Paris May, there was a movement in South Africa, there was there were movements here in our own country, um, Columbia University and so forth. Uh, students basically protesting for their rights, for autonomy, for against social injustices and so forth. The movement in Mexico was really big because it started as a student movement, but it was quickly joined by workers and by farmers. And uh, so it grew. And um, Mexico at that point, at the in the fall of 1968, was due to host the Summer Olympics. So uh, the Mexican government had constructed huge sports installations and there were new hotels and so forth. And, you know, the country was really expecting to get its money's worth or get back uh, what it had invested in, in this project, this Olympic project. And so uh, the student movement really um, kind of began to stand in the way of that. People began to to cancel, tourists began to cancel and so forth. Right. And so on the 2nd of October of that year, um, the Mexican government came down brutally on a peaceful demonstration and up to a thousand people were murdered uh, in a single afternoon at a place called Plaza of the Three Cultures. I was involved in that movement. Uh, the magazine also supported the movement very vocally, but uh, Sergio and I were both involved in the movement. And um, so um, our involvement brought uh, down upon us um, a pretty serious repression that that went into the the following year, 1969. And um, as a result of that, I was forced out of Mexico underground, and I took refuge in Cuba, where many... um, Many artists and writers had been welcomed over the years, and also people involved in in uh, struggles in different places, uh, progressive struggles. So I would then live in Cuba for the following 11 years, the second uh, decade of the Cuban Revolution, when things were really very exciting still, yeah. and some of the later problems uh, hadn't surfaced. By that time, I was no longer with Sad Hill. I had... Uh, begun living with a a U.S. poet, Robert Cohen. We had another daughter. So um, we and our four children lived in Cuba um, during the decade of the the 70s. And then you mentioned Vietnam. Uh, I traveled to Vietnam. When I lived in Cuba, I 
taught English to a Vietnamese comrade uh, three times a week. And uh, we became very close. And I had done quite a bit of oral history uh, with women, especially uh, at that point. And so Vietnam was still at war. The North and South were still separate countries. And um, the Vietnamese Women's Union, which was the Union of, of North Vietnamese Women, invited me to Vietnam in the fall of 74. I spent uh, close to four months there traveling the country as far as, as below the 17th parallel into the to liberated zones of, of the South and um, interviewing women uh, for a book which uh, I then wrote when I returned to Cuba of oral histories with women in that struggle. So I was in Vietnam, in North Vietnam, just six months before the end of the war, which, of course, took place in April of 75. And that was a life-changing experience for me, coming from the country that uh, was fighting the Vietnamese yeah. uh, in the North. When I went to Cuba, I felt like my eyes were opened to a vastly different rhetoric than what I had learned. And that comes with traveling, but... I feel like I felt it more in Cuba than, say, like Slovakia or Belize or Morocco, if that makes sense. I understand what you mean. I mean, realizing that you've been lied to or that information has been left out. Yeah. I think it's an experience that we've all had, you know, if we live in the United States and really if we live in any country. Because, and I include Cuba and I include, you know, countries that call themselves socialist or communist or capitalist or democratic or whatever. Um, the major news outlets in all countries, I believe, uh, defend the interests of that country. And so you're given a specific narrative that may be partially true, it may be not very true, yeah. uh, but it, it usually leaves out the story as told by the real protagonist. And I think that was something that I've been very fortunate in my life to have been able to, on the ground, uh, interview people who were those protagonists in Cuba, in Nicaragua, in Vietnam, in Peru. Uh, it, it's just, you know, I don't think that it necessarily one one story completely replaces the other, but I think that uh, huge holes have been left gaps in, in, in the history books and in our school texts, and it's important to fill those gaps in. You were talking about being a poet throughout all of the countries that you've lived in, and in Girl with the Plastic Shoes, you talk about how you still primarily wrote poetry in English, even though you obviously you speak Spanish, but you felt you couldn't express yourself with the Spanish language? Yeah, that's, that's, been, a, that's been a really um, kind of interesting phenomenon in my life. I, You know, I've tried to write poetry in Spanish. I've written other things in Spanish, and I communicate with, two, with three of my four children uh, in Spanish. I've tried to write poetry throughout my, my adult life in Spanish, and I've just never been successful. I think it has something to do with um, it being, you know, Poetry is such a, an intimate kind of concise genre, and I think it, it, it really draws on your native 
language, the first words you use. In fact, coming coming back to the United States after living 23 years in Latin America, I came back here in 1984. And one of the reasons that I came back was that I just had this yearning for my original language. We're currently living in a really politically and culturally divided time here in America, and it's sparking a new generation of activism and activists. How do you think we can foster intergenerational connection in social activism, and what can younger activists learn from your generation? Oh, my. I hate giving advice because I think (laughs) that it's up to them now, and I, I look to them, actually, the younger generation, for answers myself. I will say that one of the things I think they can learn from is our failures. Um, And I think one of our great failures, uh, in my generation at least, was uh, not being inclusive. Uh, At at one point we thought about class struggle, but we didn't really think about gender or race. And, of course, we never thought about about homophobia or heterosexism. Uh, Xenophobia is, 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 is new because of the great waves of uh, immigration and migration. And I think that we were very sectarian, the movements in which I participated. Um, the sectarianism, I think, was a tremendous error. So I'm hoping that's something that the younger generations will learn from us, not to be sectarian, to be inclusive. In terms of intergenerationality, um, I think just being together, speaking with one another, listening to one another, being interested in the experiences that different generations have is important. But as you say, we're in a situation right now that's really critical. I think we're going to need to pull together a lot of different strands to, to be able to challenge not just what Trump has is leaving us, which is just horrendous. But uh, And when I say horrendous, I'm not even thinking of his executive orders or the the things he's done to roll back environmental protection and health care and, and education and so forth. I'm thinking of just this atmosphere of hatred that he's fostered. It's not going to go away uh, just because we have a new president, a better president, you know. Yeah. Uh, we're left with a divided nation. People keep reminding me, well, it's really not 50-50, you know, It's only about a third of the people who actually um, supported Trump. But that's a big big number. That's a big percentage. And um, I think it's going to take generations for us to come to terms and get over the damage that's been done. What advice do you have for feminists in particular and the feminist movement going on today? Well, again, you know, I I listen to them. I don't know that I have advice for them, but I do hope that they would study what we did, uh, which was hard work, you know, my generation. I mean, the things we achieved, uh, Roe versus Wade and, and, and other things, improving women's opportunities in the workplace and, and uh, you know, in the military and uh, not, not, of course, reaching our goals, but making improvements, uh, marriage equality and so forth. So I hope that today's feminists remember and acknowledge those gains and build on them. You know, we have to keep moving forward. 
So again, as I say, I don't like giving advice. I, I prefer listening, but, but I think we all have something to tell each other. That was feminist poet Margaret Randall speaking with 51% Elizabeth Hill. Randall's recently released memoir is called My Life in 100 Objects. It is published by NYU Press. Poet Hyde E. Erdrich is a member of the Turtle Mountain Band of Ojibwe. She has authored several volumes of poetry. Her latest is called Little Big Bully. KFAI's Sheila Regan has more. In Minneapolis, I'm Sheila Regan. She tunes her ears to vicious snarls, says, yes, that one. The workers say, no, we don't think so. But she insists on that body of fury, that vibration of animal urge to hurt, to bite and bite the hand, to feed up some of what it learned, to serve it back in snaps. Poet Hyde E. Erdrich has entered very few contests in her life, but when she has entered them, affirmations have come her way. An early success was the Many Voices Project by New Rivers Press, which helped launch her career back in 1992. More recently, Erdrich beat out 3,000 other entries when she won the National Poetry Series Award for Little Big Bully. I was elated to even be a finalist for that prize because I knew it meant I would get a great publisher. The collection, published by Penguin Poets, artfully crafts images that eat at the reader. She coos low, ungloves, tucks him under her arm. She knows she can, knows this one knows what it is to be used like a gun. Little Big Bully aptly had its release near the 2020 election, something Erdrick didn't plan on, but in hindsight seemed apropos. When I realized we were going to go through a crucial election in pandemic, I did think a little bit about how the book would be relevant. A major theme throughout the book of poems is poor behavior, manifested in numerous ways. An Anishinaabe poet and member of the Turtle Mountain Band of Ojibwe, Erdrich writes of violence and erasure with aching clarity. In one case, comparing the disappearance of bird species with that of native nations. I would like to think they've gone off somewhere safer. Chevron, finch wing, split swallowtail. Not gone, gone, just off. Not halved, clap of doves, yellowhammer flicker. Thinking about announcements about the reduction in wild birds, um, watching them from my window as I drove past migrating birds and butterflies, mashed up in my head with political policies that Native nations fought in the 1950s. The work also touches on the violence of American capitalistic forces, like cold water being shot at peaceful protesters at Standing Rock a massive protest that rocked Erdrich's home state of North Dakota. If we give ourselves to anything, we give ourselves to water. If I give myself to anything, I give myself to water. Much of Erdrich's work also pointedly incises the national stage, revealing the abuse that has been allowed to fester. When I was struggling with... um, both personal events and the political events since 2016, I saw 
somebody posts something about, you know, the 10 signs of a narcissistic abusive relationship. And I'm like, oh my God, this totally applies to the country. In her poems, Erdrich grapples with why people get hoodwinked by bad people. Yeah, I was really trying to figure out like, what is the mechanism? What is the thing emotionally, intellectually, um, behaviorally that allows abuse? People who side with abusers, people who become subordinate. She even has one poem about the first lady, Melania Trump. She wants to be set apart. She wants to be alone, though she will not stop talking to you. She sounds like mink secrets. Examining these questions meant Erdrich had to mine deep into her own experiences and act as a witness to trauma experienced by others. I saw abuse of, of girls and children and very young women. And there was no mechanism by which to say anything. You know, sexual harassment wasn't even a phrase that was I knew before I was probably 18. In some ways, the book is Erdrich's own answer to the Me Too movement. But no, I really did resent having all these memories flooding in and realizing how much the average woman of my age put up with and endured. The result is a fierce indictment, an adamant assertion, and one that leaves room for a few love poems just the same. How tender we all, how wrapped in a thick coat. For KFAI, I'm Sheila Regan. Denmark's parliament has passed a bill that will recognize that sex without consent is rape. Amnesty International women's rights researcher Anna Blues says it is the result of years of campaigning by survivors who, by telling their painful stories, have helped to ensure that other women do not have to go through what they endured. Denmark becomes the 12th country in Europe to recognize sex without consent as rape, although momentum for change is building in other countries to amend their laws. Greece amended its rape definition in 2019, and Spain and the Netherlands recently announced plans to amend their national laws to recognize this. A recent study by the University at Albany and Partners found that a mother's postpartum depression can last for a full three years after the birth of her baby, and in some cases get worse over time. Published in the Journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics, the study found that one quarter of mothers had elevated depressive symptoms in the three years after the birth of their babies. Additionally, young mothers, those without college education, and those with gestational diabetes were at a higher risk for depressive symptoms. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Tina Rennick for production assistance. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok. Our theme music is Glow in the Dark by Kevin Bartlett. This show is a national production of Northeast Public Radio. If you'd like to hear this show again, sign up for our podcast or visit the 51% archives on our website at wamc.org. This week's show is number 1641.